morning, everyone. Now, I have to say, I, I, did, I did put these guys up to doing I Saw the Light because um, we all went to Cape Breton a few, few weeks ago. I guess it was Labor Day weekend. And uh, maybe it's that monitor that's on in front of me, but can you kill some of my voice coming back at me, if that's okay? What's that? No, it's not. Just, uh, there's, there's something blasting. It's, I think it's this monitor is on. Yeah, that's what it is. Great, thanks. Yeah, like it's just hitting me hard here. So, um, yeah, we went to Cape Breton uh, a few weeks ago, and, and uh, we went to Marguerite Baptist Church, and uh, they sang I Saw the Light to start off, and it was ringing through my head for two weeks, and it was crazy, and I thought, I can't get this song out of my head. So the only way to get it out of my head is to sing it. So I tried that on my own. That didn't work. So thus it ended up on the uh, on the list today. So we'll go to uh, we'll go to John Wells' place next Saturday, and we'll pull "I Saw the Light" out of the, and we'll practice that until till we till we actually can start it on time, like <laughs> the way it's supposed to start here. So, so, all right, let's uh, let's look to the Lord for a minute, please. Thank you, Lord, for this uh, day you've given us. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, our Savior, and I uh, pray, Lord, that you would help us as we look into your Word. You would challenge our hearts, and that you would make us to be more like your son. If there's anyone here this morning, and Lord, you know every heart, you know every motive, you know every person, and if there's anybody here who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, Lord, may they today see him as the only Savior and come and trust him. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. So earlier this summer, I was thinking about uh, obviously, July 21st. So <laughs> that's what happens when you just recycle PowerPoint things. Um, uh, earlier this summer, I was thinking about Joseph. I just I was going through some difficult stuff at work. It's only gotten worse, but but I was thinking about Joseph and his life and the hardships and the things that he went through, and and I, I know that hardship can do a couple things to you. They can, it, hardship can make you bitter or it can make you better. It's how you face it and it's what your attitude is. But what got me to thinking about Joseph was this just little phrase that I've been looking at and this is probably the fourth message I think that I've done that has the little phrase, but God, in the text. And here's another text. The last, first we looked at where Jesus died, but God raised him from the dead, it says in the book of Acts. And Ephesians said, you were dead in your trespasses and sin, but God, who loved us, has rescued us from that. And then we looked at Noah the last time. The judgment is coming upon this world, and judgment came upon the world. It says in that situation, though, but God remembered Noah and rescued him from that. And here's a passage that we, we see of... of the hardship that, that uh, Joseph went through, and there's a little but God in this passage. So turn in your Bibles to the 50th chapter, the last chapter of the book of Genesis. I do have the texts up behind me if you want to uh, look at those things. I'm going to give you a little background on, on Joseph himself. You know, a lot of people have gone through hardship and rejection and hurt by, by loved ones, and 
most, most people have, many people have. And it hurts, it really does. And sometimes you just wish it would go away and it would get better and it doesn't, it gets worse. And sometimes it just things go unresolved for many, many years. And what happens to you when you're going through that? How do you deal with that? That's what I want to look at today. Uh, the account of Joseph is one of the Bible's most compelling stories, really. Um, it's got its ups and downs, Joseph's life, his career, years of deception and selfishness by his brothers. And then it comes to the finale. Uh, and we're going to look at that today. I have three points. And I won't tell you. We'll see them when we get there. Because if I tell you now, it won't make any, won't make any sense. He's the great-grandson of Abraham. So Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. So his great-grandfather was Abraham. I did look up some dates of when Abraham died and when Joseph was about 17, and he probably didn't know his great-grandfather, only would know him from accounts that people would have told. So he would not have seen his great-grandfather face-to-face. He was despised by his brothers. His brothers were very jealous of him. It was because Joseph had this way of he had dreams, and he would interpret the dreams, and some of those dreams were about his brothers, and they said, whoa, 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 whoa. Who is this dreamer of dreams? You know, like, we're not going to have anything to do with your dreams, Joseph. Like, you're, you're this young dude in the family. You're 17 years old, and you're, you're going you're gonna to tell us these, these dreams about us? Are you kidding? And we're going to bow down and worship you at some point in time? I uh, don't think so. So he was despised by them. So the story goes that he was taken out. They, were, they, they see him coming with a message from dad, and they said, this is our chance. Let's kill him. Nobody will ever know. We'll just kill him out here in the wilderness and just you know, go back and, and tell dad, oh, it's unfortunate, but Joseph's dead. And one of the brothers who had about that much credibility, Judah, said, why don't we just sell him? So these Midianites came traveling through, and they sold Joseph to the Midianites. The Midianites went to Egypt, and they sold Joseph down there. And they, Potiphar said, well, this is a good-looking dude. I mean, he's, he's tough, and he's rough, and he's you know strapping young guy, so I'm going to have him work in my household. Well, he became his chief bodyguard. He came, became the, the head of, of Potiphar's household, eventually. And then he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. And because of that, he was sent to prison, and he was joined by the, the baker and, and the cupbearer, or the butler, in the prison. And, of course, there were dreams happened, and he, he said, I know the interpretation of these dreams, and so on. And they said, you know what? <laughs> when we get out of here, we're going to tell Pharaoh about you. Well, they forgot about him. They left him there. And then, suddenly, Pharaoh has a dream and says, anybody know what this is all about? And they said, you know what? Oh, man. It's this guy in prison we were supposed to tell you about. Uh, Joseph. So he went back and he, Joseph comes out. Joseph interprets the dreams. Joseph becomes prime minister. A little different than the way we do prime minister thing here. But this is, this is the, I think our guy thinks he interprets dreams. Did, <laughs> whoops, that came out, sorry. <laughs> no, he's just a dreamer. Oh, sorry. <sighs> so anyway, he becomes the number two man in Egypt. This is recorded, right, and put on the internet. Oh. Uh, don't worry, I'm never running for office. I don't think. Here's the interesting thing about Joseph. 25% of the book of Genesis is about the life of Joseph. 25% of a 50-chapter book is about Joseph. The description of 
God making the universe is ten, is ten words. Like, huh? Are you still there? <laughs> Sorry, Sam. <laughs> ten words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. Creation of the universe, ten words. 25% of the rest of the book is about Joseph. Joseph's account talks about the providence of God. Now, when I talk about the providence of God, I'm talking about something different than miracles. Miracles are things where God comes in and in a supernatural way, he affects things. Water turns into wine. A leper who's going to die, healed. A leper goes, dips in water, Naaman, healed. Those are, those are miraculous events. Providence is God working behind the scenes of history and behind the scenes of day-to-day -day life and governing and working those scenes to his glory. And you read the account of Joseph and you see the providence of God. God's working. Joseph's family was a very dysfunctional family. His, his, uh, his father had four wives, four wives at the same time. Uh, and multiple children with those wives. His brothers were involved in rape, incest, murder, and human trafficking. So you might think you come from a dysfunctional family. These guys, these dudes are really, really bad. In uh, chapter 50, it reveals Joseph's viewpoint of the previous 40 years. So he's been, now he's been taken away, he's been sold, he's there for 40 years, and now we're going to see how does he face life. There, here's the, uh, the passage. Let's, let's take a quick look at it. Now, to the background, Jacob has died, his father, and he's buried. And the brothers are back from the funeral, and they're back in Egypt because of the family famine in their homeland. I don't have time to go through all of the, the chapters, but, but there was been, there's been a famine in their homeland, and they've been living in Egypt. So the father died, they go, they bury him, and they come back. And these brothers are really paranoid and probably for a good reason. So Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph, Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? Did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father charged us before he died, saying, thus you shall say to Joseph, please forgive, I beg, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. Now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then the brothers came also and fell before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid, I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. The first point I want to look at is, first of all, they had a baseless fear. You know, Joseph's brothers, they got rid of him. They sold him to the Midianites. As I said, he was taken to Egypt. And they thought that Joseph surely is dead once they sold him off and he was gone. They didn't hear back from him. Then, later, they found out that he controlled the world economy out of Egypt. The biggest nation in the world really was Egypt at that time. And here is Joseph controlling most of the economy. They're in a famine situation, and so they head down there, and now Joseph has provided and protected his brothers. And they were completely in debt to him. 
But they were afraid that he's going to rescind that and say, okay, now that dad is dead, we have a little score we've got to settle here. You remember, boys, what you did to me 40 years ago? Out in that wilderness where you sold me? That's what they think is coming. But you see, Jacob is dead. The brothers thought, okay, Jacob is the buffer between us and Joseph, and oh, now we're totally vulnerable and exposed. Our dad is gone. Like, dad's not going to get mad at Joseph anymore if he, if he, if he takes, us, takes revenge against us. We're on our own here. So they're totally, totally fearful. But it's really baseless because Joseph had already shown them some kindness. Joseph, they're, they're afraid of two things. One, it says right in the text, perhaps Joseph will hate us. Totally contrary to the truth. Joseph actually loved them, and he showed that he loved them. He showed that earlier. And secondly, they're afraid of his reaction, that he may repay them for all the evil that they had done. They're walking around with this guilt, this heavy conscience of guilt for 40 years. I mean, I've, I've, I've walked around with guilt in my life on things before, and, you know, for a few days, it, it, it kills you. I, I remember when I was a kid in school, and I told the story here before, but I used to walk to school, and I'd take my good old time because it was, th- th- it was more exciting to watch them build the junior college. It was, it was halfway between home and school. And I go over and I watch all the trucks and the machinery and the concrete being poured. Like my mom always said, you knew every brick that went in that place by name. And, and I watched it and I'd show up at school at 10 a.m. School started at 8.30. And it went on for forever. And then I finally ended up in the principal's office. I don't really know why. I mean, I'm learning so much about construction. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm in the principal's office and he said, you know you're late every day? Tardy, I think was the word he used. And I had to look that one up. And I, this is grade two. So I said, yeah. And he said, well, like you can't do that. Uh, does your mother know that you're that late coming to, to school? I said, well, yeah. I, I've okay, here's, here's what I did. Brilliant. I slept in. He said, you slept in every day? I said, yeah. Does your mom have an alarm clock? No. She doesn't. I totally threw my mother under the bus here. <laughs> and he said, that's kind of concerning. Uh, does she need an alarm clock? I don't know. Okay, go back to your class. So at the end of the class, I was given a note from the principal, take this home and give this to your mom. So I did take it home. And I hid it in my closet. (laughs) And like Edgar Allan Poe's telltale heart, it was yelling and screaming at me from the closet for days. And the guilt was crazy until the principal called my mom and said, did you not see my note? Because I haven't heard back from you. And she said, what note? The note that I sent home with David about him being late for school every day. Mom's horrified. She said, do you have a note from, (laughs) here it is, Mom dug it out of the closet, and so on and so on. Well, the guilt, the guilt for those days while I was sitting there. Now, could you imagine these brothers, 40 years, 40 years walking around with guilt. It would be crazy. You see, the psalm says, in Psalm 38, verse 4, it says, for my iniquities are gone over my head, a heavy burden, they weigh too much for me. If you're walking around with guilt on your conscience, it's a heavy, heavy burden. A heavy burden. Jesus says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
I will take that yoke from you, that, that burden from you. Spurgeon said, I'd rather bear any affliction than be burdened with a guilty conscience. And they were taking their, all of their guilt and they're now putting it on this whole situation. They're, they're just projecting it onto the situation saying, everything they do is now clouded by their guilt. And they come in and they're, they're just almost irrational as they start thinking about it. 40 years of guilt hanging over them. It, 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 it distorts reality. They thought that he hated them. He loved them. They thought he was unforgiving. He forgave them. Five chapters ago, we would have read that. You know, it's really hard sometimes, and John Warren would know this way more than I would, but sometimes when you're trying to share the gospel with somebody and their guilt totally distorts their reality. They think God is this mean old ogre or doesn't exist or doesn't care about them. Have you ever heard somebody say, well, God doesn't care about me in my misery? Because their guilt has, of their sin has been on them so long and so heavy, it weighs them down to the point that they, they can't even get a right perception of what God or Jesus is. They're distorted. Their view is twisted. And it's because of their guilt. Guilt on the conscience, it's like, it's like rust on metal. It starts off, and first it just kind of discolors the metal a little bit. Anybody has a car? Anybody here have a car? Hmm, okay. Anybody have a white car? <laughs> so, yeah, you, you start to get this little yellow spot. Huh. I'll just put some wax on that. That'll be fine. Really, it's starting from the inside. The problem is, over time, just like guilt, it starts to, it starts to just rot and creep in even deeper, and eventually it eats out the heart of everything in that metal. I can give you a little illustration from my days of my very first car, which I bought for the fine sum of $200, and it was a little Toyota Corona. And I'll tell you, it had to pass inspection, and it passed, because I got this stuff back then. It was, it was called pipe tape, but now it's well-known as duct tape. And I covered every hole and spot that I could with that, and then went out and got some paint at Canadian Tire, and I sprayed over all of that stuff, and I took it in for inspection, and they looked at it and said, hmm, that's a, that car's in pretty good shape for the, for the age. And yeah, it is, sure is. And he passed it. A couple months later, I'm driving through an intersection, and a lady comes, and she goes through a stop sign, and she hits my car Right, right across the side of it, and everything of the car just was swept away by the street cleaners when they came along because it was just a pile of rust. But that's the way, that's the way rust is on metal. It's, it's hidden, it's inside, it's eating and eating away. Guilt does that to a person. It eats away on your soul, on your heart. And it distorts your view, and it distorts your heart, it distorts where you are. And so sometimes you're sharing the gospel with somebody and they've been feeling guilty for so long. They've dealt with so, they've had so much sin in their life and, and they've never dealt with it. They've never come to Jesus Christ and dealt with their sin. And you try to talk to them and the guilt has, has just rotted them away on the inside. But the good news is that that's why Jesus Christ came. He came for the guilty. When we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly, the guilty the rusty, the ones who are rotten from the inside, the ungodly. So they have this baseless fear. The, the next thing that we see is they, they make up this blatant fabrication. It says in 
verse 16, it says, They sent a messenger to Joseph, saying, Your father charged before he died, say, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of your servants of God, your father. And Joseph wept, and they spoke to him. Then the brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. You know, the brothers are so paranoid that they couldn't even go themselves. They're so gutless. They can't even go and face Joseph themselves. They send a messenger. See, there's a number of reasons why I think this is just a made-up lie. First of all, there is no record. There is no record at all of Jacob ever saying these words. You would think something this important, that it would be recorded, that Jacob would have said them. You would have thought that when Jacob had an opportunity to stand face-to-face or sit or lie, whatever, face-to-face with his son, Joseph, he would say, hey, Joseph, listen, man. I'm about to go the way of all the earth or whatever they say in those days. Can you please make things right with your brothers? You know, it, like, it was hideous what they did to you, but you know what, for the family, can you, can you kind of make things right? There's no record of him ever doing that. In fact, I have my Bible open to the wrong place. No, I don't, it's the right place. Chapter 49, verse 22. These are the words of Jacob as he's lying and dying on his deathbed, and he says, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him. They shot at him and harassed him, but his bow remained firm, and his arms were agile. The hands of the mighty one of Jacob, from there, from there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, and so on. And he goes on, and he blesses him. He doesn't say a negative thing to him. He doesn't instruct him to make things right with his brothers. So I look at what the brothers are saying when they're coming back and saying, here's what your dad said. Please, I beg you, Joseph, make things right with your brothers. It's a blatant lie. They're making this up. There is no basis for this. And they send it by messenger. <laughs> so these brothers were like opportunistic. They were, they were just like the way, the way they acted. They used their dead father as the fall guy. He says, hey, dad said this. I know he's dead. You can't go back and check with him, but this is what he said. Like they just totally, you know, like to use that expression again, throw him under the bus. Here's dad. He's the scapegoat. We'll just, we'll just say he said these words. Collectively, their personality was paranoid, opportunistic, and they were always deceptive. They had been treated lavishly by Joseph and Pharaoh. They'd been looked after and provided for during these years of famine. But what they're doing here is trying to save their own skin. You know, Proverbs 29, verse 25, I, yeah, I put that there at the bottom. It says, the fear of man brings a snare. These guys lived in total fear of man. It says, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Here's Joseph, always trusting in the Lord. And Joseph is the one who's exalted. You know, Joseph always lived from a but-God perspective. Joseph, Joseph was different than his brothers. It says in, verses, uh, in verse 45, chapter 45, sorry, Verses 1 to 3, it says, Then Joseph could not control himself. This is when he first comes face to face with his brothers. Before all those who stood before him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was not a man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. 
He wept so loudly the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And then in the next verses, 5 to 10, it says, Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me, for God sent me before you to preserve your life. For a famine has been in the land two years, and there's still five years which will neither be plowing or harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve you, or preserve for you a remnant in the earth to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruled over the land of e- a ruler over the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen and um, you shall be near me and you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. Doesn't sound like Joseph hated his brothers, does it? Joseph loved his brothers. Joseph was going to do whatever he could to preserve his brothers, even though they treated him like an enemy. Joseph could have at that point in time exacted revenge on his brothers, but instead he provided for them. He lived in a, in, in a but God attitude. But God has done this for me. But God has, has provided this for me. But God has put me in this place to provide for you. His brothers, on the other hand, they lived in the but we attitude. Joseph told us his dreams, but we resent him. Joseph brings us a message from dad, but we despise him. Here comes Joseph in his nice coat, but we will show him. We'll sell him. Now dad is dead and Joseph's prime minister, but we will outsmart him. Self-preservation. They, they come back to deceit every time. It was, it was in their DNA. Somebody said one time, people change, but not that much. So these guys tried to change, but they couldn't change that much. They were deceivers. That's the way they lived. That's the way they operated. But what did they find when they came to Joseph? When they finally sent this message to him and he, they come before him, they found a brother's forgiveness. Third and final point. They found a brother's forgiveness. Verse 19 says, But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them, and he spoke kindly to them. The brothers expected anger and vengeance. That's what they, that's what they, were hope, that's what they expected they were going to get. But instead, Joseph wept. Joseph's heart was tender towards them. Joseph saw their torment and he was sensitive. He saw their fear and extended forgiveness. He comforted them. You know, I look at us and I think of how God looked upon us with all our guilt, with all of our fear, with all of our deception, all of our sin. He was sensitive to us in that he sent us a savior. He saw our fear, he saw what we have, but he extended forgiveness to us rather than judgment on our guilt. And he provides comfort through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will come to him, if you will trust him, you will be comforted. So how does love and forgiveness come from a heart of someone who's been mistreated? I don't know your story, and, I, and you don't know all of mine. 
But when there's hurt, when people have really, really hurt you, it could be somebody in your own family. Often it is. It could be friends. Maybe you've been betrayed. Maybe you've been, maybe you've been maligned because you became a Christian. I know a guy on the very same night that he came to Christ. Came home and his father threw him out the door and he said, can I pack a bag? He said, no, and sent him out with the clothes on his back. On the very day. On the street with nothing except what he had on his back. How do, you, how do you get through that? How do you get above that? Well, there's three points here that, that Joseph says, his theology, I suppose you'd say, on pain and suffering. The first thing is Joseph knew that God was in charge, not Joseph. You see, where we run into trouble is when we think we're in charge. I'm going through some stuff at work right now. It's hideous. I was telling John, like, business world's tough enough, but business world at our place is really, really tough. And I have to look at it and say, God is in charge. I'm not in charge. They're not even going to ask me. They're going to make decisions. They're going to do what they're going to do. I am not in charge. Joseph says, am I in God's place? This is what he says to the brothers. You're not coming to God here. You're coming to Joseph. I'm a man. I am not in charge here. God is in charge. You know, we need to tell that to some of the rulers of our nations. I mean, it's election time. Yay. It's always election time, isn't it? I mean, in, in the book of Daniel, Daniel says to King Nebuchadnezzar, the most high rules the kingdom of men, but he gives it to whoever he wills. If you've got any power in this world, it's not because you have power. It's because God has privileged you to have power for that time. So whether you're president, prime minister, mayor, or whatever you might be, the boss at work, it's only because God, who is in charge, has allowed you that privilege. The second thing he uses, he knows that God uses bad events to bring about good results. Joseph had a clear understanding of God's providence in his life, no matter what the people's intentions were. All the difficult things, I mean, he had a list of stuff that went wrong in his life. If you just look at it and think, whoa, sold by his brothers, hated by his brothers, left for dead, sold to Midianites, resold to the Egyptians, left in prison, falsely accused, all of these things. But he rose above that. Why? Because he realized, okay, there's a God at work behind all of this. I am going to serve him. I'm going to love him. No matter what, I'm going to serve God. I'll let those things work, work themselves out. God will work this out for my good. You know, there's a verse in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, and I, sh I know probably everybody here knows it. It says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. R.A. Torrey calls this a soft pillow for a tired heart. I like that. It's a soft pillow for a tired heart. He uses the words in this term in here. It's, uh, yeah, I knew I'd put it out there. The Greek word is synergeo. Synergeo works together. It's one word in Greek. It's, it, it's where we get our word synergy. It's a cooperation of two or more things coming together to work for a, to produce something better. I thought, well, what, what could that be? What can I think of as an example? So I had to put that little thing up there just to remind me. The positive ion sodium. I don't know if you have sodium sitting home in your 
spice cupboard, but you probably don't. You have a form of it. But if I were to take sodium here, anybody who's ever studied any chemistry knows that when it's sodium's at a, at a lab, it's under lock and key. You don't get near the sodium. If I had a bucket of water here and I dropped a few grams of sodium in it, this room would blow up. That's how powerful sodium is. Chlorine. We all know what happened in the war when they made chlorine gas and they just pushed it out over the fields. As soon as you breathed it, you died. Two deadly substances. Man, they're horrible. Awful things. Bring them together. You got sodium chloride. Halite, as we call it in our house. Table salt. Yummiest stuff on earth when they put it on potato chips. <laughs> so here are these two things that sodium will kill you. Chlorine will kill you. They're brought together. Sodium chloride. Table salt good. So sometimes God takes all these bad things that happen in your life and he might bring them all together and weave them together and at the end of it you say aha, I know how God takes all these things, all things, good things, bad things, terrible things, wonderful things and they work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. The third and final thing he says or that he realizes here is that God uses people to help other people. God used, I was going to say Jonah, you can tell I'm in a fog today, Joseph to help his brothers. He used Joseph to help his brothers. He's saying, yeah, what you did was wrong, but if you didn't do it, I wouldn't have been sold to the Midianites, and then I wouldn't have come down here to Egypt. Then they wouldn't have thrown me into Potiphar's house, and then they wouldn't have thrown me in prison after I was falsely accused by his wife for something I didn't do. And I wouldn't have gone to jail and those two guys who had dreams and then they forgot about me for a couple of years but then they remembered. Then I wouldn't have been in Pharaoh's house to interpret his dream and then I wouldn't be the Lord of all of Egypt. But because of all of these things, because God works all these events together, here I am to help you. He's here to help them. God uses people to help other people. Sometimes what you're going through will help someone else. Conclusion. I put that up there to assure you that I'm coming to a conclusion. <laughs> First of all, your suffering is never wasted. In, uh, I put the verse there, for 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have comforted, been comforted. If you're going through a hard time and God has comforted you, you can share that with somebody who's going through absolute misery and help them. That's what that verse says. God has comforted you, and because God has comforted you, why don't you tell that to somebody else who's going through a difficult time? And it will be a comfort to them. But I want to point to another picture that's here too. It's a picture of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's so many parallels in Joseph's life to the life of Christ, probably more than anybody else in all of the Old Testament. Joseph is so, Jesus is so pictured in the life of Joseph. Love to take the time and go through them all, but time is gone. But here we see unconditional forgiveness towards his brothers. 
After all they had done to him, yet he forgives them. Look at the Lord Jesus Christ and the forgiveness that he offers you today. Jesus was despised. He was rejected to the point that he went to the cross. Took your sin upon himself. He was actually sold, just like Joseph was sold. And yet, in all of that, it was done so that he could forgive you. All of that was done to him so that he can forgive you of your sin. You know, that has really confounded man and Satan. Second Corinthians, or First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, says we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom of God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age, which would speak of demonic real rulers as well as the earthly rulers of this age, if they had understood what they were doing, or, uh, sorry, uh, I'll read the text. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. You know, if, if the chief priests, if Pontius Pilate, if the Romans, if they all knew what they were doing, we are taking this man and we're going to nail him to a cross for victory. If they had known that, they wouldn't have done it. But you see, God took all of those terrible events, the whipping, the scourging, the th crown of thorns, the, the hatred of man towards the God of heaven, and he used all of those things, he used all of those things to bring him to the cross that he could forgive you of your sins. He took all of that horror, and out of that has brought the goodness of salvation to you. I hope you've trusted him. I hope that you've, you see a savior in all of this. Here's a brother who forgives his brothers, this mob of, of deceitful scoundrels, without any, without any exception. Forgives them for what they've done. God is offering you the same for forgiveness. If you come to him, confess your sin, repent and turn from it, and accept Jesus Christ as the only Savior. My final question is to the Christian how big is your God you, you and I both we say we love him we serve him is he big enough to take the bad things in my life and weave them together for good do I trust him for that do I lay my head on that soft pillow for my heart that God is working whatever is going on in my life he's not here today so I can pick on him I read Stephen Michael's post on Facebook this week about the world crashing down a year ago. I know his family's here, so they got to be. But I read that and I thought, isn't this a case of the God of heaven taking what seems like bad things at the time for a person's good? He had nothing but praises for God in what he posted. How would you be if you're fired from your job tomorrow? Would you look at it and say, oh, God, you say you're looking after me, but I don't feel looked after now. Or would you look at it and say, you know what? In the scheme of things, I trust God. He's been with me all these years. He's never let me down. He, he tells me I'll never leave you or forsake you. I will never let you down. In fact, all these bad things, I'm going to put them together for something better. 
That's the way we need to look at our, at our hardships in our life. That's the way Joseph looked at the hardship in his life. We need to say, but God, not but me. Father, thank you this morning that we can come and read this amazing passage in Scripture, that we can see how you looked after Joseph in all of this hardship. We can see pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. We can, we can see the forgiveness that he offers unconditionally, just like Joseph did to his brothers. Their sin was great, but their forgiveness was greater. We thank you. We have a Savior. Father, for every person here, we, uh, the Scripture says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his own love to us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, if there's a person here who has not come to trust you, I just pray today that they would turn their heart to the Savior. They would humbly come and trust you and have their sins forgiven. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.